Okay, let's get started this morning. I need kids to be quiet and behave like I've asked you every Sunday. You've done well. Just keep up the trend. Remember, this is being recorded, and if you misbehave, it'll be heard by people all over the world. I know you guys don't want that. So, for those that aren't here, this will be up online this afternoon. So, if you do miss a Sunday, you can follow along as we're actually into the text now. We're going to follow it exegetically. Okay, I think more than ever, the study of this book is important at this particular day and time. As we see events that are unfolding around us, I believe we're on the threshold. I believe that the fullness of the Gentiles is close, and I believe that Christ is coming to take His bride home. It could be any day. We know that in the last days, several things will happen. We know that Israel will be dwelling in the land. They are in the land. It happened in 1948. We know that there will be apostasy and false teaching in the church running rampant and that the church will be in a state of lukewarmness and ineffectiveness. Ecumenism, compromise, we see that all around us. We saw it with the inaugural activities that took place recently where people from all these denominations came together to uh, hold these services in celebration of President Obama's inauguration. Some of them are people that uh, uh, other Christians in their naivete would respect. People that have associated themselves with homosexual clergy and women in ministry and things like this that would show their true character. So apostasy is all around and, and uh, we're at the doors. We know that the commercial center of... Uh, the globalist economic system in the last days will be in the city of Babylon. Okay? Babylon has not been uh, uh, inhabited for a while, but U.S. tax dollars have already been used to fund a renovation of that old city in the country of Iraq. So it's interesting to me that the United States went into Iraq and removed the dictatorship and still has an influence there, and that our tax dollars have already been used to fund... Uh, activity there on the site of biblical Babylon. So all of this stuff can happen very quickly. As it said here in Revelation that the time is at hand. In other words, when it begins, it will happen so swiftly that people's heads will spin. Um, I believe that we can see an example of how Antichrist could come to power and usurp control of a world government swiftly. We see an example of that in the rise and fall of our pre or the rise of our president. He came out of a place of complete obscurity in Illinois, got into the Senate, and before you know it, he was president of the United States. And everybody thinks he's a god or a demigod, or he's been referred to as the second coming on one of the one of the ridiculous magazines that came out recently. So we can see how people can be swayed into following a man and worshiping his God quickly. So when these things begin to happen, they'll happen with swiftness. And we as a church need to realize that as these things unfold around us, as we see things going toward possibly loss of liberties, loss of freedoms here in America, perhaps even civil war, we need to understand that this is a fight that cannot be won apart from the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to earth. It's a fight that cannot be won. This fight for American liberty and freedom and to keep our guns, this fight cannot be won. So we need to keep our focus not upon the laws 
of this land in terms of resistance and revolution and all that. Our focus needs to be upon the King who will come and overthrow all of this world system. You know, America, just like any other kingdom that's risen and fallen and turned its back on God, is Babylon. America funds Al-Qaeda to bring down these Middle Eastern governments and then therefore create fear in the hearts of American people and because of the chaos. And then our, that same government uses the chaos to take away our liberties and freedoms. So America is Al-Qaeda. It is the drug cartels. It is these things. So stop putting your hope in your country and put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be watching and waiting for the bridegroom to come. Yes, we should be prepared. Yes, we should know what's going on around us. Yes, we should take precautions. No, we should not submit to unlawful dictates uh, in an illegal government. But our hope shouldn't be in revolution or civil war or a Republican party or electing a new president. It should be in Jesus Christ. And I believe He's coming back soon for His church. Kids, that means if you understand the difference between right and wrong, you're responsible to God for your sin. And that means apart from repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, kids, when, Christ, when Jesus does come for His church, if you're not right with God, you're going to be left behind. You're going to be left behind to deal with all of the judgment and wrath that's coming to this earth. So, you need to be like young Samuel. When Samuel was in the temple, kids... He heard God speaking to him. And he went to Eli the priest and said, Eli, I think that the Lord is speaking to me. And Eli said, you go back to your bed and when God speaks to you, you say, here am I, Lord, I'm listening. So kids, I just want to encourage you today to be ready for Jesus Christ to come back. And to be ready for Him to come back for His church is to be listening to God. When God speaks to you, be like young Samuel and say, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. And you do what God tells you to do. Because what God wants to do is bring you to Himself. Okay? So kids, you know, God is no respecter of persons. Just because you're a young person doesn't mean you escape the responsibility to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that those that don't understand the difference between right and wrong, there's an age we come to where we're accountable to God. Paul the Apostle says... Where there is no law, uh, there is no uh, imputation of sin where there is no law. You know, the only time there can be no law in your life is when you have not the capacity to hear or listen to your conscience. But we all come to a point where we understand the difference between right and wrong. And at that point, we're accountable to God for the decisions we make. And guys, it's not about a prayer you pray. It's not about whether you go to church or whether you're a good boy or a good girl. It's about whether you acknowledge your sin and repent to God and put your trust in Jesus, not in mommy and daddy, in terms of getting you to heaven, not in going to church, not in these other things. So I want to encourage you young people, Jesus Christ is coming back. You need to be ready. You don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be left behind to endure God's wrath and judgment. So think about these things as we talk about the coming of Christ. Now we're going to get into the text this morning. Um, Yes, last week I went through the first two verses of Revelation chapter 1, which are basically the title of the book. We see that this is a re revealing or an unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus Christ, who in turn showed it unto John via a messenger, which as I shared last week was probably one of the Old Testament prophets. We know it contains symbolic 
uh, language. We know it contains symbols, but these things have a meaning and can be understood. And we know that John, who writes these things, was an eyewitness to what transpires. He bore record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Eyewitness testimony. But we have a more sure word of prophecy than even eyewitness testimony, and that's the Word of God that He's inspired and preserved down through the centuries without error. And that's the trust we can put in this book. So, the first two verses of chapter 1 are the title of the book. A long title. And then we get to verse 3. That's where I'm going to begin today. Verse 3 contains an interesting threefold blessing. A blessing upon those that give their attention to this book. Now this is something that's unique that you don't see necessarily in other books of the Bible. So here in verse 3 it reads, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So here we see, blessed are those that read, hear, and keep the words of this book. That's a blessing. So, why is it that this book is ignored? Why is it that this book is neglected when there's a specific blessing given to those who read, hear, and keep? Now that verb there, to hear, comes from a Greek word that means or implies to understand. So, we are told, blessed are those that read and that understand and keep. Now, if we're told blessed are those that understand, then it makes logical sense to me that this book can be understood. It can be understood. So this idea that prophecy is so uh, uh, mysterious and cannot be understood and therefore all we need to concern ourselves with is that one day Jesus is coming back and the details aren't important, that flies in the face of this blessing right here. Blessed are those that read, hear, or understand, and keep. What is to keep? Keep means to guard. How do we guard what's written in this book? We guard it by proclaiming it, by fulfilling it, by paying attention to it, and by looking for the things that are written therein. Paul the Apostle at the end of his life wrote to Timothy, That he was ready to die. He was ready to die. He knew his time had come to die for the gospel. And he said that he had a a crown of righteousness had been reserved for him. And not only for him, but to all those also who looked for the coming or the appearing, the parousia of Jesus Christ. Are we looking for that coming of Christ for His church? That's one of the best ways we can keep this book, is to look for it. To watch, to be vigilant, not to get encumbered with the things of this world. I want uh, Matthew, we look up Hebrews chapter 11, 13, Daniel 1 Peter 2, 11, and Anthony Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. More specifically, the Scriptures tell us how we can keep a proper perspective in terms of the coming of Christ. Go ahead. Yes. These all died in having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
Okay, this is talking about those great Old Testament saints, those people in the hall of faith that give us an example to live by. And these men, these women did not hold on to the things of this world. Abraham didn't look for an earthly city. He looked for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God and lived in this life as a stranger and a pilgrim. Guys, we need to live as pilgrims and strangers in this life. Not holding on to the things of this world. Not holding on to our country and our government and the stars and stripes. But holding on to the fact that we are looking for a heavenly city, a heavenly country whose builder and maker is God. Strangers and pilgrims. That's all we are. This isn't our home. 1 Peter 2.11 Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Strangers and pilgrims. Here Peter addresses us as such. Abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain from the desires that would tie us to this earth because we're just, heaven, we're just strangers and pilgrims. The things God has given us our homes, our, our careers, our jobs, food in our bellies, a place to find shelter at night. These things exist for God's glory so that we are able to obey God's commandment and bring glory to Him and proclaim the gospel. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Walk circumspectly. That is to walk as a pilgrim. To not be attached. Redeeming the time. Not wasting the time. Our time is short, guys. If Christ is coming for His church, once He comes, there won't be any more proclaiming the Gospel to the lost for the church. This is the only opportunity you have. I think of that book written by Mark Cahill, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. One thing you can't do in heaven is preach the Gospel to the lost. This is your only opportunity. To redeem the time is to make use of it because it's short. The days are evil. That's, the more the days are dark, the more circumspectly we should walk. Strangers and pilgrims. That's the mindset, the eternal perspective we need to have if we're going to keep this book. Now it's interesting, in this blessing, it tells us we're to read, hear, and keep. Now these verbs here in the original language are in the present tense. They're, they're participles in the present tense. And in the Greek language, that implies a continued doing. Keep on reading, keep on hearing, keep on keeping what's written in this book. It's not enough to just preach through it once in church or to read through it once in your daily devotions. We need to keep on reading, keep on studying. Not only the book of Revelation, but the whole Word of God. It's such a wellspring of wisdom that we couldn't possibly master it in a lifetime. This is the only book in the Bible, my friends, that contains such a direct promise of blessing. We ought to give it our attention. Now, there's an irony here. The one book in the New Testament that invokes a special blessing to those who read here and keep it is the most unread, the most unheard, the most unkept, and the most un misinterpreted of all other books in the Bible. Now, isn't that the great irony? The very blessing right here in the beginning of this book anticipates that it'll be ignored. That's why John wrote this. Now, why do you think Satan would desire that this book be neglected? What's recorded here? His destruction. In fact, 
It isn't until Revelation chapter 12 that we actually get the true identity of that serpent in the Garden of Eden. We're told that the serpent came and tempted Eve, and she therefore tempted Adam, and, and sin came in the world. That, that uh, enemy is identified as the serpent. My friends, it's not until Revelation chapter 12 that we know the name of that serpent. Oh, we can have an idea as we read through the Scriptures. But it talks about... Um, um, trying to find this verse here. It's in Revelation chapter 12. It says in verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this book identifies the deceiver in the garden, and it foretells his doom. Therefore, it would be of his interest to keep people from reading it. To cause it to be neglected in the church. You know, the two books that Satan attacks the most in the Bible are Genesis. He attacks its authenticity. And Revelation. He causes it to be neglected or rejected. Genesis tells us where he came from. Revelation tells us where he's going. So there's a reason why he would be active to make sure these books are attacked and ignored. All the more reason for us to study them. If we can't get or understand the clear revelation of God in Genesis, then everything else breaks down and you end up with a whacked out misinterpretation of the book of Revelation. And that's usually what happens. It's interesting that those who would spiritualize everything in the book of Revelation and argue against... Uh, God fulfilling promises to Israel and, and, and claim that these things were fulfilled in history and the details aren't important or couldn't be understood. Those same people are the ones, most of the time, who would say that God didn't create the earth in a literal six days. That day doesn't mean day. Evening doesn't mean evening. Morning doesn't mean morning. And they would, they would believe that the history of the world is based upon an evolutionary framework and that Genesis is just symbolic language that really is not a statement one way or the other on actually how God uh, created things. So it's interesting how those things go hand in hand. But we believe the simple, literal truth of the Bible. We believe when God says He made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, a day means a day. Exodus confirms this when God gave His commandment to Israel about the Sabbath day. For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, Moses said, and He rested on the seventh. So we have a blessing. That's why we need to study this book. I encourage you to do it on your own time. Don't rely on me to teach you everything in here. I don't know everything and I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, I hope you'll bring it to my attention. Give me scripture. Show me where I'm wrong and I'll correct myself in this preaching. So I'm just a servant. Let's move on. We have a title, a blessing, and then the next four verses are kind of a salutation, a greeting to those that would read this book. Revelation 1, 4-8 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before His throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood 
and has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him, even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, this letter specifically is addressed to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, this reference to Asia is not the continent of Asia like China, Mongolia, uh, Japan, uh, in, in, in that area of the world. Asia is, was, a, was a province or a region in Asia Minor, which uh, is modern-day Turkey. The country of Turkey used to be called Asia Minor. And Asia was a region of Asia Minor. It was kind of on the western side. If you can picture that, that Turkey kind of sticks out like a thumb. Asia was here on the western side bordering the Mediterranean Sea. It was an area about the size of Pennsylvania. Now, there weren't only seven churches in this area. Okay? The Bible makes reference to churches in, in Asia that were located at Colossae. You know, Paul wrote a, an epistle to the Colossians. Colossae was in Asia. Hierapolis had another church body that was in Asia. Troas was in Asia. So this isn't addressed to all the churches in Asia. Specifically, it's addressed to seven churches. There weren't only seven churches in the area, though. And we are told as the messages are given to the seven churches, let him that has an ear hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So we know it's addressed to all believers, but Paul writes to just seven churches. Therefore, these seven must be representatives or types of something larger. Oh yes, they were actual churches in John's day. But I believe that they were also, or they are also types of churches that exist at all times in church history and today. Kind of like the law of God. God gave His law and moral law and Ten Commandments. If you look at those Ten Commandments, Jesus showed us how they could be summed up into two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. In the Ten Commandments or the law of God, we also see God's morality or His righteousness. Everything about it summed up in those ten commandments. Everything you can think of in terms of morality is represented or answered by at least one of those ten commandments, if not more. They're representative of all that is right and good. They're representative of what is right and wrong. And that, those commandments are written on our heart and our conscience. And therefore, we can know right and wrong in every situation. I don't believe that there really are gray areas. You know, everybody talks about gray areas. I believe there's an answer to every situation. And if we will interpret Scripture with Scripture, we know what's right and what's wrong. Now, there are certain areas in the Christian life where God gives some liberty, and others He doesn't. There are certain areas where people can exercise their liberty in Christ without violating their conscience or without sin, and there are others that can't. That doesn't mean that the issues are gray areas because the Holy Spirit speaks to us and in God's law, everything is summed up. It's the same principle here. These churches are representative of everything that a church can be 
everything that churches are, types of churches that, are, that exist, and we'll also see as we look back on church history that it's, these churches are an amazing prophetic foreview of how the church age unfolds from the day of the disciples or the apostles until Christ returns. And the only way you can really understand that is by looking back on history. The early church fathers, or even in the periods of Reformation, couldn't look back and see this prophetic unfolding because it hadn't happened. All of it hadn't happened. But we, living in days of apostasy, can look back and see that this order of letters is an unfolding of church history that matches amazingly to what actually has transpired in terms of the general spirit of the, of the Christian church in the world. So, um, this letter is addressed to seven churches. They are representatives or types. And because the specific messages to the churches, as we see in chapters 2 and 3, uh, contain an exhortation that anyone that has an ear to hear, let him hear. They apply to us. So there's much to be said here, and we'll talk more about that later. The number seven is a symbolic number in the Scriptures that means completion or fullness. And it's used here twice in these four verses. The addressee is the seven churches. Look at this invocation here. Grace be unto you in peace. Now we see this a lot in Paul's letters. It's not just a formal greeting here. It's not just a formal invocation. This is an amazing picture of the richness of the Christian faith described in two words. Something that religion cannot offer anyone is grace and peace. In those two words are summed up the richness of our faith in Jesus Christ. Grace is our standing before God. God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us by our faith, or through our faith, given to us by God in the first place. It's our standing before God. God's riches at Christ's expense. And then peace is our experience that flows from that standing. Because we've been declared righteous upon our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we experience peace with God. Richness of the Christian faith summed up in two words. Amen? Now we get to the author. Grace and peace un, uh, grace unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come, from the seven spirits which are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. Folks, right here we have the Trinity. Very simple. Him which was, which is, and which is to come. That is God the Father. Now it's interesting if you go down to verse 8, Jesus claims this title for Himself. Jesus Christ is God. God the Father, Him which was, which is, and which is to come. And then we're told that it's from the seven spirits which are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. So we see God the Father very clearly. Then we have this reference to the seven spirits before God's throne. And then we have Jesus Christ. So we have the Father, something about seven spirits sandwiched between, and then the Son, or sandwiched between Father and Son. And so, this seven spirits, I believe, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And in a way, it's what I would call an MRI of the Holy Spirit. It's telling us of what the Holy Spirit is composed. Seven, the number of completeness. The seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, what would make me think that? 
Um, somebody look up, uh, or uh, let's see here. Jeremy, look up Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. This is a prophecy in, the, in, the, in, in, in Isaiah that talks about the Messiah and how the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. And it describes that Spirit that will fully indwell Messiah when He comes to earth. Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. Listen to this. So Messiah will be the, the Spirit of the Lord or the Holy Spirit will rest upon Him. Well, what is that Spirit? It's the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit of wisdom. It's the Spirit of understanding. The Spirit of counsel. The Spirit of might. The Spirit of knowledge. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. There's seven aspects of the Holy Spirit right there. In His fullness. Now, it tells us in John chapter 3 that God or the Father gave the Son the Spirit, but not like it was given to men in the Old Testament. It says here in John chapter 3, verse 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. You see, Messiah was the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. We, we see that at His baptism when the dove came and rested upon Him as a symbol of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And that Spirit is a sevenfold Spirit. It's a full Spirit. Tells us in John 16, Jesus said when He sends the Comforter to indwell us, not by measure like in the Old Testament where the Spirit would come upon people and leave them, but indwell those that repent and trust in Christ, Jesus said that this Comforter would also reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's His role here on earth. Just like it's talked about here in Isaiah. About reproving. Reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, what type of spirit is needed to do that? Spirit of the Lord. Spirit of wisdom. Understanding. Spirit of counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's a spirit of all these things. Not one without the other, or some at some time, one time and others at another. He's all these things. So my friends, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then you will bear fruit. We know what the fruits of the Spirit are there in Galatians. And we know that the Spirit is these things written here in Isaiah 11. So, is there wisdom and understanding in your life? Is there counsel and might? Is there knowledge? Is there the fear of the Lord in your life? Because that's the Holy Spirit. A spirit of the fear of the Lord. Why is there no fear of God amongst Christians today? I've had so many people tell me, we're not supposed to fear God. That's Old Testament. 
My friends, if you believe that, then you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of the fear of the Lord. You don't have wisdom and knowledge dwelling within you because as Proverbs says, the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now this man I used to work with that's done some wicked things to me likes to boast about this comment he came up with. Some say knowledge is power, but I say that knowledge applied is power. I just think that's a ridiculous statement. No, knowledge is the fear of the Lord, and knowledge applied is the fear of the Lord. If you have no fear of God in your life, and you live as if your sin means nothing, then I question whether you would have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of the fear of the Lord. A reverential awe and humility before a transcendent and all-powerful God. You see, Jesus Christ is not your homeboy. He's your Lord and Master. And you'll see that this same John who laid upon Jesus' bosom at the Lord's Supper, later in the chapter we're going to see what John does when he sees Christ. And that ought to be the same fear we have. But here we have the Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, which is a sevenfold Spirit. I believe it's revealed to us right there in Isaiah 11. And Jesus Christ. Now who is Jesus Christ or how is He described in verse 5? The faithful witness the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Friends, this is His threefold office. Prophet, priest, and king. That's who Jesus Christ is. As a prophet, He is the faithful witness. He bears testimony to the Word of God. He speaks the Word of God. As our priest, He is the first begotten of the dead. You see, Jesus Christ wasn't the first in history as a man to be raised from the dead. We know that God raised some folks from the dead. There was a man that fell upon, uh, or I think they fell upon Elijah's bones and rose from the dead. Or I don't remember the exact story there. Lazarus was risen from the dead. Elijah was used to uh, uh, raise a, a young person from the dead. But Jesus Christ is the first begotten of the dead because all these others rose from the dead and then died again. Enoch didn't die. He was translated. But Jesus Christ died and came back to life again in a resurrection body. He's the first begotten of the dead. And because He did that, He can stand between us and a holy God as our mediator. Proof in His resurrection that God accepted His sacrifice. And therefore, He can mediate, as the Scriptures say, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it says that He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is king, my friends. Now, He is king and He rules and reigns in the hearts of those that believe upon Him in the church. But He doesn't rule and reign at this moment physically over the earth. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Satan is the one that went to Christ and said, the authority over all these kingdoms has been given to me. If that wasn't a true statement, then that would have been no temptation to Christ. For a time, Satan has been given power over the kingdoms of this world. But there's coming a day when Christ Jesus will make His enemies His footstool. And He will take back what is His, the title deed to this earth. Some people would deny that the book of Revelation can be literal, saying, well, Jesus rules and reigns today. What do you mean He doesn't reign today? Well, He reigns in the hearts of His people. But look around you. What do you mean Jesus Christ reigns on the earth? 
Look around you. Read the news media. Look at the church. Look at the governments. Look at the wickedness. No, Satan is the prince of the powers of the air. He's the prince of this world. But Christ is king, and He's coming as revealed in this book to take back what is His. Um, I would like, Jamie, would you please read Hebrews 10, 13? Nate, Hebrews 2, 8. Christ is king, sits at His Father's right hand, expecting until His enemies be made His footstool. But that's a sure thing. What do these verses have to say? Christ is henceforth at the right hand of the Father expecting. That means patiently waiting for the day that will come. Expecting, knowing it's coming, but expecting. Nate? All things have been put under Christ's feet, but now we see not all things put under Him. In God's plan and purpose, there's coming a day when this will be done. This will be done at Armageddon in Revelation 19 when He comes back on that white horse and splits the Mount of Olives and overthrows the beast and the dragon and the false prophet and the wicked kingdoms of this world. But we see that not fulfilled at this moment. And why is that? Well... We're given an answer in Acts chapter 1. You see, Jesus' disciples, when He was preparing for His ascension back to heaven, asked Him a question. They said, Lord, will You at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will You at this time take possession of Your kingship? Jesus said, It is not for You to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. Times and seasons which God has ordained. You see, Satan may be the prince of of the world, the prince of the powers of the air. He may seem to have rule and reign over this earth. But these are times and seasons that God has put in His own power. God controls them. This isn't a cosmic dualism, good versus evil. It's God up here. Satan thinking he's up here on this level playing field, but he's really down here. For Satan to, to, Satan to overthrow God's kingdom and purpose would be like a kid with a super soaker trying to take over a country. It's not happening. Okay? But God has put these things in His own time and power and there's coming a day when Christ, who has been declared king by virtue of His death, burial, and resurrection, will actually take possession of that kingship. And if you understand and study the role of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament you'll see that Christ is the kinsman redeemer of the earth. And that that title, when Adam sinned, came into Satan's possession. But it's rightfully Christ. And Christ is going to reclaim it. And there's a way that that was done. All of these things are a picture in the Old Testament of God's dealing in human history and in the future through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that more in Revelation 4 and 5. So we have the threefold office of Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. What an amazing Lord we serve. He's not a, a little g-god that does things for his own benefit. When the gods or the devils of Hinduism do things, they do it for themselves. Jesus Christ does what He does because He loved us and washed us in His own blood. Who is this Jesus Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. Verse 5, Unto Him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in His own blood. These verbs here, loved and washed, are what's called an aorist tense. That means it happened at a point in time. It happened. It's done. It's sure. Once for all. You see, Jesus Christ loved us and washed us. It happened. It's not something that has to keep on happening for us to be right with God. It's something that happened at the cross through the resurrection sealed upon our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ once for all. Now, what did, what did Jesus do first? He loved us. And because He loved us, He washed us from our sins. Now, everybody likes to talk about the love of God and God loves everyone. God's love comes to mankind through a channel. And that channel is Jesus Christ. Just like water comes to a village through a channel. That channel is the river, or the creek, or the stream, or the lake. That's why in ancient times, or in old days, or even in third world countries, villages are built near water sources. It brings the life-giving water. But people wouldn't go erect a village or a city apart from a life-giving water source. Because that would only bring death. It couldn't sustain itself. You can't find the love of God. You can find His grace that shines upon the just and the unjust, but you can't truly find or experience the love of God apart from the channel, the life-giving river of Jesus Christ. And that's why in John 3.16, we have a little adverb right there in the beginning that is so important. For God so loved the world. So is so important. Why? It tells us how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved the world through Jesus Christ and the cross. To reject Jesus Christ and the cross is to reject God's love and to incur His wrath. There is no love outside of Christ. It's in the cross. But in the cross, there's not only love from God, there's a washing from God from our sins. Ronnie, would you read Hebrews chapter 10, 9 and 10? Gigi, if you would read 1 Peter 3.18. Loved and washed once for all. The aorist tense. Once for all. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the purse that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Jesus Christ offered up Himself once for all. And by repentance and faith, that salvation, that sanctifying is sure. It's sure. Okay? For Christ also had once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in His flesh, but quickened by His sin. Christ hath once suffered for sins, that He might bring us to God. My friends, when you come to Jesus Christ upon your repentance and faith, that salvation is secure. It's secure. It cannot be lost. Because Christ once suffered. 
to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back, trying to make atonement for your own sins as if the sacrificial system in the Old Testament has any efficacy today, is what Hebrews say is trampling underfoot Jesus Christ. Putting Him, crucifying Him fresh and putting Him in open shame. If you think you've got to keep coming back to God to get a salvation that you can never grasp or never be sure of, then your faith is not in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you're putting Him to an open shame. You need to repent. You need to trust Him. You need to quit thinking that, oh man, maybe I'm not saved. Well, a saved person has fruit in their life. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of false converts out there. But Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was good enough. And our salvation is not based upon our actions. Our own faith comes from God. And that's a testimony of His grace. Here in verse 6, not only did He love us and wash us from our sins, He has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is also the aorist tense. Past tense. Made us kings and priests. Are we kings and priests in the temple of God in the heavenly Jerusalem right now? No. But this is what's called the futuristic use of the past tense. In other words, it's so certain that even though it's future, it's written of as if it's past. Now we see Paul do this in his writings, particularly in Romans chapter 8. It's the same concept or the same uh, uh, grammar here. It says here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, past tense, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, past tense, those He justified, them He also glorified. If you're saved, born again in Jesus Christ, you were not only predestined by God, according to His foreknowledge, but you've been justified. You've been made righteous based upon Jesus Christ. Are you glorified? Is Earl Green glorified in heaven right now? No, he hasn't received his glorified body. That happens at the rapture. His spirit is with God. To be absent from the body is to be spirit with the Lord. Christ comes for His church. The dead in Christ shall rise, and they which are alive and remain will be caught up with Him in the clouds, receiving a glorified body. Glorified! We're not glorified yet, but it's spoken of here in the past tense because it's as good as done. If you've been saved, you will be glorified and you will rule and reign with Jesus Christ as a king and a priest. It's as good as done. So certain that it's used in the past tense. Friends, that's our hope. We shouldn't be giving our efforts to quote-unquote fixing America. We should be giving our efforts towards stewardship that God will reward in His kingdom. That's our future, to be kings and priests. So let's live and walk circumspectly that we can be ready to live and administer a heavenly country. Paul said we'll judge angels. And why is it that when we have a conflict, we have to go to law to settle matters between believers? Don't you understand that we'll judge angels, Paul says? These things are as good and done. We've been declared to be kings and priests. Let's live like it. A king and a priest in God's kingdom doesn't panic or get enmeshed in the things of this world. A priest 
before God proclaims His truth and isn't ashamed. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. All of our salvation here, friends, is secure. God's loving us, His washing us, and His making us kings and priests, they all go together. It's all salvation. Salvation is not just praying some prayer to Jesus. It's justification before God, sanctification in the Christian life bearing fruit, and glorification in eternity. It's secure and it goes together. Now a lot of people like to point to Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 and teach that you know, the, the language here implies that salvation can be lost and other clear Scriptures would contradict that. And such an interpretation ignores the audience to whom Hebrews is written. My friends, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people. It was written to Jewish people who had seen and been confronted with Jesus Christ as Messiah. Some of them had been living in uh, uh, Jerusalem or in, in Galilee at the time Christ walked. Some of them, many of them undoubtedly had been present at Pentecost and these Jews had been scattered. And Paul was writing to them and warning those who had tasted and seen all these things and knew the truth but were wavering between belief or trust in Messiah and trust in the religious system. That's what Paul is writing to. Like those Jews at Kadesh Barnea when, when the spies went into the land. When the spies came back, they wavered. And it was their unbelief that condemned them. Paul's writing to Jews saying, you know, either believe it or not. You've seen and tasted these things and if you fall back upon that unbelief and trust in that old, those sacrifices in the temple, it means nothing. That's when Paul says, uh, if we sin willfully after we have knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no sacrifice for sins. That's written to Jews. If you sin willfully... There is no other sacrifice but Jesus Christ. So you can go back to the temple every day if you like. It has no power. It has no efficacy. So if you read those Scriptures in that context in which they are written, you'll see very clearly that's not talking about loss of salvation for the genuine believer. In fact, in verse 9 of chapter 6 in Hebrews, Paul says, But I am convinced better things of you, my brethren, things that accompany salvation. So salvation is obviously something very different than what Paul's writing about. Our salvation is secure. Praise God for that. And we can see it right here in Revelation chapter 1 in the tense that Paul's used. You know, as priests, we need no priest between us and God. Jesus is a mediator. We don't have to go to God through a priest like religion says. Catholicism included. Catholicism is wicked religion. Paganism straight out of Babylon. It's not biblical Christianity or the Gospel. Religion says you come to God or the gods or the spirits or the devils through a priest. That's not us. As born-again believers, we are kings and priests before God. We have access to God by way of Jesus Christ. By way of Jesus Christ. Jim, would you read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? I'm almost finished here. I just want to get through verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith to His grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Wow. Because we're justified upon our repentance and faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, that experience 
through Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access to God. My friends, a priest has access to God. We have access through Jesus Christ. That is not religion. Religion doesn't make kings and priests. It makes subjects. Jesus Christ is not religion. Jesus Christ is not religion. Now it's interesting here, after these things are spoken, these bold declarative statements, He's made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who knows where that word amen comes from? Is that an English word, really? Amen is a Hebrew word in the Old Testament and it was transliterated into the Greek language. Amen. So if you read the word in Hebrew or Greek or English, it's amen. And basically it's just a, um, an exclamation that means so be it. True. As Ebonics would say, true that. That's what amen means. So we voice our affirmation at these truths. So this thing has been declared, Amen. Amen. So be it. It is true. So Amen means something. When we voice that, we, we are affirming that we believe what has been spoken. What an amazing thing. Amen. Verse 7 here is pretty important. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all the kingdoms of the earth shall wail because of Him, even so. Amen. This is written here in the present tense about a future event. It's a similar use as the aoristic or the futuristic aorist. This is the futuristic present. In other words, it's so certain that it can be spoken of as if it is now. Jesus Christ comes with clouds, and when He does, every eye will see Him. Those also that pierced Him. And all the kindreds of the earth, will they rejoice because of Him? No, they'll wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I used to have a bumper sticker on the back of my RV when we traveled around the country preaching the Gospel. It says, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And boy, is He mad. You see, this idea of Jesus Christ being ushered in to some millennial kingdom through the morality and good deeds of mankind is it's bogus. This idea that Christ might come back to earth as a bum on the street, there was some really stupid country song written about that, is ridiculous. You see, when Christ comes back, it tells us here in 2 Thessalonians, says, He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, it will be in flaming fire. Every eye will see Him and the kings and the peoples of this earth will run to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. They will wail because they will know it is too late. Now this reference to Jesus Christ's second coming is interesting. It says that when He comes, that those who pierced Him will see Him. What do you think that's a reference to? Who are the ones that pierced Christ? True. What nation of people was that? Jew, Jews. 
the Jews, those that pierced him, or, or, consent, or, or had him pierced. Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. He did it because he was afraid of the Jewish mob. If you've ever seen a mob, mob scene in the third world, you can understand that. But there's an interesting prophecy in Zechariah, the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, this was written to the house of Israel, the house of David, almost 500 years before Christ, and I will pour upon the, the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son. That's God Almighty. Jehovah Elohim speaking. Telling the people of Israel, the day is coming when you will look upon Me whom you have pierced. Now it's interesting that Old Testament prophecy usually has two stages of fulfillment. A prophecy is given and then there's a shadow fulfillment and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. When the Bible says that a forerunner would come, Elijah the prophet, before the great day of the Lord, that happened in the life of John the Baptist. He was a shadow fulfillment. But there's an ultimate fulfillment of that when Elijah himself does come as one of those witnesses to herald the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ's coming came in two stages. Once as a suffering servant, second as a conquering king. The prophecy given to King Ahaz about the virgin that would conceive, its initial fulfillment wasn't in Jesus Christ. It was in Isaiah, the very next chapter, going into the virgin prophetess and conceiving a son, Maharshalahashbaz, and before that son was old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the kings of whom Ahaz was afraid would be removed from their thrones. There was an initial fulfillment. But it was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, when this prophecy in Zechariah was given, the initial stage of that fulfillment took place on the cross. In fact, we know that because John, in chapter 19, refers to that when he's talking about um, Jesus hanging there on the cross. In chapter 19, verse 37, or 36 and 37, For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of Him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on Him whom they have pierced. So they looked upon God whom they had pierced right there at Calvary. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is when He who was pierced, who bears the marks in His hands and His feet, comes back in the clouds, and every eye shall see Him. All those that pierced Him, that nation of people, Israel, will see the one who was pierced. They're going to wake up. There's going to be a national conversion in Israel, just like what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. In that day, all Israel will be saved. God's got a plan and a purpose for them. But that was initially filled at the cross, fulfilled at the cross, and the ultimate fulfillment will be there when He comes with clouds. Every eye will see Him, Jews and Gentile nations... Now there's no mention of the rapture here. This isn't a reference to Christ coming for His church in the air. This is a reference to Christ coming with the clouds of heaven to the earth. And it kind of confirms that Revelation, most of it deals with events subsequent to what Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 4. That, that period of Daniel's 70th week and the coming of Christ. Now, I know it's late. I just want to finish this up. Uh, Mama, will you look up Daniel 7, verse 13? This mention of Jesus in the clouds. 
It's very important because Christ refers to it when He's on trial. And the Jews got really angry. Somebody, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Jennifer, go ahead and look up Matthew 26, 64 while you're at it. Go ahead. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. My friends, this is the Jews understood this passage in Daniel to be the classic messianic reference. They understood this as a clear reference to Messiah coming with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days who was God Almighty, the God of Israel. Matthew 26, 64. Now read the next verse. What does it say they did? Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold, now he have heard his blasphemy. They asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah? He said, You've said it, but I'm going to tell you this. You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Then they got angry because they knew Jesus was taking that classic messianic scripture and applying it to himself. They didn't need false witnesses. Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah. And that association with the clouds of heaven made it undeniable. And so again here, behold, he cometh with clouds. This is an identification very clearly that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. There's no way you can divorce that meaning when Jesus is associated with coming with the clouds of heaven. He is the Messiah of Israel who will fulfill those promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. Who will reign as a king over a literal kingdom of which Israel is the center and He will sit upon the throne of David. These are not spiritualized allegories that are applied to the church. These are the plans and purposes that God has in history to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Those that say otherwise deny Scripture and take it out of context. There's a time in our lives, my friends, when blunt truth needs to be spoken firmly even when we know that the reaction won't be good. Jesus knew when He said that and identified Himself as the Messiah that the reaction would be as such it was. He spoke it anyway. Buzzwords. Paul was the same way. Paul got the Jews so angry at him when he told them about how God said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. He knew they were going to react like that. Buzzwords. We shouldn't be afraid to speak hard truth. There are times we have to do it. Even though we know what the reaction will be. And it's the truth that will condemn and glorify God in those situations. We have an example on a side note of Jesus' speaking of blunt truth firmly despite an anticipated reaction. Jesus claimed Messiahship there in Matthew. And here in, in Revelation, it is again claimed, Behold, He comes with clouds. Now in verse 8, and I'm going to wrap it up, Jesus Himself says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. What is this Alpha and Omega a reference to? Anybody know? 
That's right. First and last letters in the Greek alphabet. The Bible was, in the New Testament was originally given to us in the Koine Greek. It's the first and the last. The Alpha and Omega. Christ is everything. And look how He identifies Himself here. Say it, the Lord which is, which was, and which is to come. The exact same title given to God the Father back in verse 4. Jesus Christ is God. He claims the title ascribed to God the Father. He is God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3.15 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. King James Bible. Not He appeared in a body. Modern English versions. Not He came to earth. Modern English versions. God, theos in the Greek, was manifest in the flesh. Not hos. He. It's funny how these modern Bibles, they usually attack the deity of Jesus Christ. The Greek doesn't say that. Jesus was God in the flesh. Not like the gods of men, not like the devils of Hinduism that take on human form for their own purposes and then leave and do something else. He's God manifest in the flesh. And friends, this is just an introduction to the book of Revelation. Look at everything we learn or everything that's summarized here just in the salutation of the letter. We not only have information on the Trinity, we have an MRI of the Holy Spirit. We have the three offices of Jesus Christ elaborated upon. We have an identification of Him as the Messiah that comes with the clouds of heaven. We have a threefold blessing here. We have a picture of salvation and the relationship between God's loving, His washing, and His glorifying. And that's just right here in the first eight verses of chapter 1. Friends, this is an amazing book and I look forward in the coming weeks to doing further exegesis with you. Next week, we're going to try to finish up chapter 1, so I want to encourage you to study that a little bit ahead of time. This message will be up online later. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask me. If you don't think I've interpreted something correctly, bring me Scripture and we'll talk about it. I'm not afraid of that. And I don't profess to know everything. I can be corrected. In fact, I'm studying a few issues right now in my own life where I've had a certain belief. And as I look at Scriptures, I'm starting to wonder if my belief accurately reflects the Word of God. And if it doesn't, I want to change. And that's my prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that should be our attitude. Any questions? I know it's late. Uh, it's 12.30. I just wanted to get through this section so we could start a new one next week. Kids, you guys did great today. Thanks for behaving. And uh, uh, just think about, I encourage you parents that, you know, in the evening or something after church, ask your kids what they learned today. Make them Share it with you. And use, it, use your opportunity as fathers, as kings and priests of your household to follow up on these things that are taught with your children. That's an amazing responsibility. Let's pray and I'll bless the food and we can eat. Father, thank You for this day. We're so humbled as Your servants that You not only loved us, but You washed us from our sins and You've made us kings and priests. We look forward to the day when we will live and reign with You. Father, we are waiting patiently for You to come for Your bride. Lord, help us to walk circumspectly as pilgrims and strangers, not being tied to the things of this world, not getting overexcited or, 
or fearful at what's taking place around us, but to walk steadfastly. Lord, to yield up everything that we have, our substance, our families, our very lives, to do Your will. And like those Christians, Lord, at the church in Smyrna that we're going to read about in a few weeks, may we love not our lives unto the death. May this food give us strength, Lord. We pray for those that are not among us this morning, that You'll bring healing to them, and that we can all come together again in fellowship next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, Amen.